Hello, and welcome to The Leap of Faith. This week, more religious events will find themselves taking place online rather than in a congregation. This evening sees the close of Purim celebrations, a joyous Jewish festival commemorating the survival of the Jews who, in the 5th century BC, were marked for death by their Persian ruler. Hilary Abrahamson joins us shortly to tell us more. Later, I'll be talking with Magnus McFarlane Barrow, who started work as a fish farmer in Scotland before founding Mary's Meals. This charity feeds 1.6 million children every day in 19 countries worldwide. We talk about the changing face of charity in the 21st century. But first, Father Enda McDonough has been described as one of the more influential and liberal theologians in the Catholic Church. He was a former Maynooth University professor of moral theology and was for many decades involved in intellectual discussions on the Catholic Church's direction. He was also official chaplain to former President Mary Robinson during her presidency. In a moment, I'll speak with her about the man she called a friend. But first, in May 2009, Father Enda McDonough was a studio panellist on the Marion Finucane show on RT Radio 1. He'd been invited to share his views on the newly published Ryan Report into the abuse of children in institutions run by a range of religious congregations. The only hope of redemption, I think, for the likes of me and the official church is if we're prepared to put up our hand and say, look, we, it isn't just that we got it wrong. That might suggest we made misjudgments. We did wrong, either directly in the form of abuse or indirectly in terms of cover up or ignoring or not wanting to know. So I believe that we all will never We'll never be able, in my view, to present ourselves as Christians in public until we're able to undertake that complete humiliation that will show us for the sinners we are. Father Enda McDonough speaking on the Marion Finucane Show following the publication of the Ryan Report in May 2009. Well, joining me now from her home is former President Mary Robinson. You're welcome to the programme. Firstly, can I ask you about your memories of Father McDonough? It's almost impossible to describe how rich an experience it was to know Enda McDonough, or indeed to describe him in a way that conveys this. He was an intellectual, but didn't come across as one. He was a rounded man who loved all sport and had a great sense of humour and a sense of fun. He was deeply spiritual but very approachable to those who questioned their faith or indeed had no religious belief. John Horgan did us two favours. He wrote a wonderful and quite funny piece celebrating Ender for his 90th birthday uh, last June, which all his many friends enjoyed. And he did an obituary in the Irish Times, which described Ender as a, a theologian and scholar with a towering intellect. But I want, to, if I may, to read from a paragraph of it, and which I think really captures Enda. His good-humoured, easy-going manner embodied an ironic, self-deprecating humility which no flattery could puncture. But it also concealed a towering intellectual presence combined with a deeply rooted sense of service to others, which made an ineradicable impression on all who knew him. And I was lucky enough to know Enda for all of my adult life, and he was often full of surprises. Uh, when Pope Benedict retired as Pope, uh, Enda mentioned around our kitchen table that he had studied 
in Germany with both Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, and Hans Kung. And then he said that he preferred the theology of Hans Kung, but the company of Ratzinger. <laughs> that was typical Linda. And I remember, you know, as High Commissioner, uh, again, being down in our place in Mayo, we both loved Mayo, and I was delighted he could uh, take over a gate lodge um, to our home in Mayo. Uh, and he often came and had lunches or suppers, meals with us. And I was uh, aware fully now as High Commissioner of just how serious the AIDS issue was um, in about, you know, 1998-99. And he talked about the work he had been doing um, in Zimbabwe and in Malawi, and I think elsewhere, at a very early stage of the AIDS crisis when nobody quite knew what it was, except that it was deadly. And even in his retirement from Maynooth, um, you know, in, in, certainly in his 70s, um, he would go each summer and do what he called a locum for a priest friend of his um, who served a largely gay uh, community. And, you know, that, that, uh, that was how incredibly open he was to those who were marginalized, to those who were, you know, who needed uh, the kind of generous support that he could give. And I know that countless families are mourning him in, in Ireland and elsewhere because he was there to marry them, he baptized their children, or he was there to say a requiem mass um, for a close relation. And now we're in COVID times and it's very difficult to mourn him. I, I feel very privileged. I've been asked to go to the uh, a, a prayer service the day before the funeral, night before the funeral, um, where uh, it will be in the chapel in, in Maynooth where his body will repose. And that, that will help me a little. But I know there are many who feel it's so hard to mourn in the time of COVID. He served as official chaplain to you during your presidency. And I'm just thinking about, you've already described the idea of the kitchen table debates. Were there rules of engagement for the two of you when you got into a good theological discussion, which I'm sure did happen? Not really in the sense that, um, uh, first of all, I quickly wanted, uh, when I learned that the uh, president would have a chaplain, I quickly wanted to ensure that I had Enda and uh, I remember a funny story that happened about a month later, he got what he thought was a bill, but in fact, it was a small check from the government <laughs> for his services. And we both laughed about that. We did have lots of discussions. I mean, for me, it was just so wonderful to be able to talk to him about everything and, 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 and some theological discussions. We both shared a great interest in law and morality and the role of the state in that. And he very much had supported my early efforts on family planning. And we were on a constitutional committee together in the late 60s, uh, you know, reform of the constitution to open it up and remove the ban on divorce, for example. And he was in favor of that. He also would have had a, an influence in the areas of faiths coming together uh, and also the idea of, of peace would have been one of his drivers. Very, very much so. We, we talked a lot about Northern Ireland. He was so engaged. Uh, he you know, was part of the Irish Association. I think he was president of for years with Barbara Fitzgerald. Um, you know, he was very, uh, he was such a rounded man. Uh, you know, uh, he, he was engaged in almost in everything that mattered. And yet he wore it so lightly and often with that kind of humour that helped. Uh, but he was very, very engaged in peace in Northern Ireland, just quietly behind the scenes. A lot of people talk about the influence of good and great teachers. What do you think is the influence he's left behind him? I think he was obviously a great teacher because I know people who told me much later 
that they were students of something else in Maynooth, but actually sat in on his theology lessons because he was such a wonderful teacher. And, you know, I think that's just part of that personality that it's hard to do justice to. Uh, his voice, uh, his way of speaking, his openness, his humor, his approachability, his leaning to give you somehow the courage to say what you wanted to say, you know, to everybody that, that he encountered, in particular those who needed uh, that kind of support uh, to, to feel justified in themselves somehow. A man of great courage. A man of great courage. Uh, he, he knew he would never become a bishop because he had taken uh, the stands that he took. He was involved um, in a, a, a quite a radical journal uh, quite late on, um, well, when I was president, Kaja, uh, um, and unfortunately, uh, it, it, it didn't last, um, it, it had to go under. But I remember launching uh, a version of it in the Cage of Fields in Mayo, and we had to run for our lives afterwards because of the midges. We were, you know, outside up on the hill, and I remember running down the steps to the official car and beetling back to our home um, to get away from those Mayo midges. So remembered in both ways, both as a cleric and also as a man, uh, your, your final memories then of Father Enda McDonough. His generosity and openness to young people. I saw that not only with my own children who, you know, really loved him in a way, and nephews and nieces, they've all been sending me messages. Uh, how, how can you describe somebody who evokes such love and everybody knew him. And, and it upsets you to, in, in that way. You'll miss him. I miss him terribly, yes. I've missed him for the last months, as I know Barbara Fitzgerald has, um, being able to even go and see him in the nursing home and now not being able to say goodbye. It's hard. Uh, uh, may he rest in peace. Um, he, he actually, in later years, was ready to go. He had lost a number of priest friends in particular, close friends, and he you know, was quite lonely, I think, in his last year or two in Manut when we visited him there. And uh, I, he was ready to go to his, to, his, to his God. His faith sustaining him. Oh, absolutely. Eric Robinson, thank you for joining us on the programme this evening. Thank you. And a reminder that this Sunday morning on RTE Radio 1 at half past eight on Bowman Sunday 8.30, John Bowman pays tribute to Father Enda McDonough with recordings from the RTE archives. And Mary Robinson is a guest on tonight's Late Late Show on RTE 1 television after this programme. She'll tell the full story surrounding her visit to Dubai in 2018 when she was photographed with Princess Latifah and the subsequent developments in the story. Music there from the Litvakis Band, celebrating Purim. Purim is a Jewish holiday marking the deliverance of Jews from a royal death decree told in the Book of Esther. All Jews, men and women, young and old, are commanded to hear the readings of the Megillah, often accompanied by loud audience participation. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined by Hilary Abrahamson. 
Hillary is chair of the Dublin City Interfaith Forum. Hillary, can I take you back to your childhood? What was it like in the synagogue when the Scroll of Esther is read? I believe it's a somewhat colourful and theatrical event. Absolutely. Everybody dresses up. So we wear masks, funny hats, and we sit and we listen to the reading. And every time the name of Mordechai or Esther is, is read, everybody shouts and laughs and makes ha happy noises. But when Haman's name is read, people write the name of Haman in chalk on the soles of their feet. They have rattles that are a little bit like football rattles. You know, the things go, whoa, whoa, whoa. So the idea, and they boo, and the idea is to blot out Haman's name. So you will make a terrible noise and you will stamp your feet to wipe off his name. There are also little skits or, or spiels or plays. Have you ever oh. taken part in one? Oh, I have. I think when I was about five, I was one of the beauty contestants. And I had to say, my home is far off Patagonia. My family is much older, Antonia, than most pedigrees and family trees from here to far off Patagonia. You still I think remember the lines. Uh, yeah, uh, 70 years later, yes, I still remember the lines. And, and in terms of uh, telling people, I suppose, a little bit about the uh, about the day, it's, the, the period itself and the, and the celebration itself, there's almost an obligation on people to have fun, to make Absolutely. merry. Absolutely, and, yes. and dare I say, even enjoy a drink. Yes, in fact, you're encouraged to drink so that you don't know the difference between... Blessed be Mordechai and cursed be Haman. You're supposed to get, it's, it's the one time in the year, so please don't think we're drunk all the time, but the one time in the year when people are encouraged to have a, to have a, a, a drink, yes. Hilary, one of the other elements, of course, is the idea of giving charity and gifts. Well, yes, you give gifts of food uh, to, to friends and family. And this year, of course, we can't we can't meet people, so we would leave things outside people's doors. We celebrate by eating these lovely little pastries that are three-cornered, uh, a bit like Heyman's hat, and they're filled with um, poppy seeds or other sort of fruits and, and, and things, and they're they're absolutely delicious. We also give to charity. I know last week you were talking about the Uyghurs. And the Uyghurs are being persecuted in the same way that Jews have been persecuted over the centuries. And so we identify with them. And our synagogue is linked to liberal Judaism in England. And they're doing many things to support the Uyghurs. And so are we. At the moment, of course, we can't meet. And in fact, the very last service we had last year in our synagogue was Purim. It was the last one we had before the lockdown. This year, everything is online. Megillah, that's the book of Esther, that will be read online so that people can, can take part. In our synagogue, we're going to have a kind of a, a Purim spiel, which is like a little Purim play. And that, that will be occurring. But the community have been absolutely marvelous since the lockdown. Um, I do sign language twice a week. We do yoga. 
uh, we have talks, there's cookery demonstrations, there's something absolutely every day. It's quite amazing. And as you're watching online, will you be cheering and booing at the appropriate parts? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We'll have our fancy hats on and we'll, we'll be booing and cheering at the, at the, the, the correct moments. Absolutely. Hilary Abramson, can we wish you all the very best and a happy <laughs> Purim as well. And thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Michael, thank you for the opportunity to tell you a little bit about Purim. Finally this evening, Magnus McFarlane Barrow started work as a fish farmer in Scotland before founding Mary's Meals, a charity that feeds 1.6 million children every day in 19 countries worldwide. He was also voted one of Time magazine's 100 Most Influential People. He's also the author of a new book called Give, Charity and the Art of Living Generously, which celebrates charity's impact on all our lives. Magnus joins me now from his home in Scotland. Magnus, welcome to The Leap of Faith. As I mentioned in the introduction, the name of your organisation, Mary's Meals, has a fascinating backstory to it. But I want to bring you back even further, if I can, just to set the scene for our listeners. And that's 1983. What was happening in your life? 1983, a long time ago, I was only 15 years of age, uh, made a a pilgrimage to Medjugorje, the Marian Shrine in in Bosnia-Herzegovina, before it really was a place of international pilgrimage. Uh, I just went there with my brothers and sisters and some cousins uh, because we'd read a little report. uh, And and our experience there really changed our lives, I suppose. It really renewed our our Catholic faith. In time, led my mum and dad uh, to turn our home, uh, which used to be a small guest house, into a, a Catholic retreat centre. Um, so that experience really, yeah, it really shaped our lives in, in, in a lot of different ways, Michael. And it resulted, I suppose, in, in, in for what I'm curious about, is your first brush with charity. Yeah, well, I mean, if, you know, forward winding from there a, f- a few years, you know, and the the war in 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 the former Yugoslavia had had erupted by then. You know, and um, we were really moved by that because we were seeing these TV reports about a place that that was very dear to us, where we had good friends, and and it felt. I'm sure we all felt like this to a degree, but it suddenly felt very close and very disturbing that a war could be happening so close to us. You know, and that that really prompted me and my brother at that time to. Um, just try and do something small initially, what was meant to just be a one-off little effort to collect aid donations from people we knew uh, and to drive that um, to, to, to refugee camps near Medjugorje. It was meant to just be that, like a one-week holiday from, from work. I was a salmon farmer at the time and I just took one week's holiday to, to do that. And then, and then life worked out in a very different way. What happened? Well... I came back from that delivering those gifts to Bosnia and I got this huge surprise, which really was that this little appeal we'd made had snowballed. People were just continuing to give in all sorts of ways, in a way that I'd never kind of planned for. And I was suddenly kind of faced with this choice, you know, do we keep going here um, when people want to give and when we've seen such huge need at the other end um, or not? And, and, and in some ways it was, it was kind of taken out of my hands. It was, it was, it was a lot harder to turn that tap of, of giving on than it was to, to figure out how to turn it off again. So I, I gave up my job, which wasn't a massive sacrifice, to be quite honest. Um, I sold my house and somebody gave me a truck and I just um, said, I'll keep doing this as long as there's a need and, and as long as people keep giving. And, and, and in some ways, that's been the story all these years since. 
I know in your book, Give, we, you, you explore the idea of, the, of how charity and charitable organisations are perceived, uh, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But I'm curious about where your efforts suddenly snowballed into you being part now of a, of a professional industry as against uh, a group of individuals with good intentions. Yeah, it, it's 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 a it's a good question, and that that's something I remain you know uncomfortable with. Even that that description as being part of a professional industry, I can't really say that it feels like that to me, or that I would want it to feel like that. But I recognise what what you're saying. So so this this you know little effort that I just described, you know, evolved over time in, into the work we do today, which is called Mary's Meals, and it's about serving daily meals and places of education for, for the world's poorest children. So we meet their immediate need of food and at the same time try and tackle that underlying cause of, of poverty by enabling them the gift of education. So that works growing ar around the world and, and there are many different Mary's Meals organisations in different countries who fundraise for that mission and many different arms of the movement serving those meals. So it's grown quite large, you know, and, and that's, I suppose, what has led me in this journey and this sometimes uncomfortable journey around organizations as they grow bigger, charitable organizations, I mean, the, the risks inherent in that of, um, you know, in, in some ways losing touch with, with, with what set you off on, on the journey in the first place, that very basic instinct of charity, that love for the suffering person you know and as organizations grow and become so more sophisticated let's say there, there, there's there's a risk you know that we start thinking about strategic plans or or marketing techniques and and along the way somehow we start thinking about uh, the human beings that we serve as you know i don't know like atm machines that we're just trying to extract as much money out of uh, as we can or or the kids that we serve are just numbers and in, in some target you know and, and i think that's a real risk for any organization as it grows and i'm really interested in that how how do we combat that th 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 those very real risks uh, just looking at your website this morning one million six hundred and sixty seven thousand children fed and of course, as we mentioned, all of the big numbers, one of the other things that comes through in, in reading your book is the idea there are still individuals that have had an influence you along the way. If I remind you of Emma's story and, and the impact that had on you. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are just so, um, so many, you know, people, uh, as you say, along the way, you know, the, 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 that, that encounter with Emma and her family, that, that was... Um, really what sparked Mary's Meals. You know, 2002, I was in Malawi, first time I'd, I'd been in that country, and we were doing emergency feeding projects. There was a huge um, crisis of hunger at that time. And while I was doing that work, I, I met a family living in one of the villages there. And, and uh, I actually made this visit with a local parish priest who was visiting the sick. And, and e Emma, the mother of this family, was dying. Uh, she, she was HIV positive. And she was dying in, in agony. She had no possibility even of, of uh, painkillers, let alone medicine to, to, to treat HIV AIDS. And, and she said to me at one point, you know, there's nothing left now except that for me to pray that someone will look after my, my children. And she had six children, her six children, they were all sitting around her. Her oldest was called Edward. And, and I began talking to Edward. He was 14 years of age. And, and at one point I said to Edward, Edward, what's your um, hope? What's your ambition? 
And he said to me, I, I'd like to have enough food to eat and I would like to be able to go to school one day. And that was it. That, that, that was the extent of Edward's ambition at 14 years of age. And that's really, you know, his words really sparked this, this whole mission of, of ours, that, that um, recognition that, that, that millions of children today are like Edward, out of school because they're hungry, missing school because they are working in the fields or doing other kinds of work just to, just to eat. You know, and therefore missing out on that only possible ladder out of 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 poverty, uh, which which education uh, provides. Um, so that was a very pivotal kind of moment in in my life. I was thinking back to some of the events, you know, in in our own uh, lifetime, things like Live Aid. You know, there was a great deal of energy and enthusiasm. Uh, but at the same time, I don't remember that there were any uh, acts or bands or singers from Africa on the stage at the time. Isn't there still this? idea of somebody coming in from outside, helicoptering into a country, into a society, fixing things and then heading out back to the airport again. Yeah, no, there is a real risk of that. And, you know, I remember sitting as a teenager watching Live Aid, as many of us did, and and and, and thinking about it now had a huge influence on me. It's probably one of the first uh, encounters I had with that kind of organised concept of international aid and, and that this is possible and there were lots of amazing things I think about that whole initiative and in and, 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 and a certain way it influenced perhaps our generation uh, to think about things like that more but yeah I, I also agree with your observation it, it does kind of make you cringe now thinking about it that, that something like that could have taken place without that that representation from the very people um, that, 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 that that initiative was all about helping one of one of the things that really strikes me sometimes when we do this work about, about of charity, we can think it's all about like material things, about giving food, or right now in Tigray, you know, providing blankets and clothing and so on. And I was really struck, you know, just last week talking to a nun that that, that we work with in Tigray, an Ethiopian nun who uh, is just in the midst of this horror that she's describing uh, around her, really horrific things and and she was talking about how much it means to them to know that they haven't been forgotten is as important as anything else and she said she said oh, a funny thing happened magnus yesterday i was um we were watching television uh, and there were crowds of people around these television screens and the local broadcaster um put out a story uh, about how Mary's Meals in Ireland had just launched an appeal for the people of Tigray. And she said this roar of approval went up, uh, you know, and, and it was such a part, it, I was so moved by that that idea, you know, of those people who feel so isolated right now and forgotten in Tigray suddenly learned that there were some people in Ireland who hadn't forgotten about them, who are trying uh, to do something for them. It was a, It was a very beautiful thing. Magnus McFarlane Barrow from Mary's Meals, thank you for joining us on The Leap of Faith tonight. Thanks so much, Michael. I really, really enjoyed that. Thank you. Magnus's book is called Give, Charity and the Art of Living Generously and is published by William Collins. And that's our Leap of Faith for this week. Our producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. Our broadcast coordinator is Jarlath Holland. From them and me, Michael Cummins. Good night.